Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Some follow-up from all the way back in episode four of Off Hours when we were talking about various watchmaking schools around the world. Uh, There was an article that came across my feed the other day from Watches by SJX, and he was talking about Cambodia's first watchmaking school. Uh, It looks like they've... uh, found a patron to fund a new watchmaking school in Cambodia. And uh, it looks like it's very, very well set up. And uh, I don't remember how many students it says that it can can handle at any time, but it looks like they can handle uh, a good number of students and that they'll be able to, uh, to go through the, uh, the full sort of woe step style uh, watchmaking program there. Uh, They intend to, have a two-year program. So uh, I think the first class, it says, is uh, opening up in uh, June of 2020. So if you happen to be in an area where going to Cambodia for a couple of years to take uh, a watchmaking course sounds uh, good for you, you may want to uh, look into applying for there. So it's it's nice to see new watchmaking schools popping up in different parts of the world that have not traditionally had them. Mm-hmm. The school looks very well equipped and is fittingly named the, the Prince Horology School. It's a, quite a princely setup that they've they've got ready for these first students who will be attending in 2020. Also from Watches by SJX, you pointed me towards an article that was quite fascinating. I haven't had a chance to finish reading it yet because it's, it's uh, quite in-depth. But this is about commissioning a custom watch from uh, Kari Vudalainen. Uh, what was this? Uh, what was this article about? Yes, this is the most uh, in-depth uh, article I've seen written by a, a collector who has commissioned a piece from Bodilin. And Gary G wrote a, a really great article as well a couple of years back for Quillen Pad about his experience commissioning a, a bespoke piece from Kari. Uh, but this this one goes. Uh, very in-depth and gives not only insight into the, the thought process uh, that this particular collector has has gone through in his ideologies in commissioning the piece, but also offers quite a bit of insight into Kari's mindset and, and thinking behind a watch and the way that, that he interacts with a client who is commissioning a piece. Uh, but it also delves into a lot of the technical details, both about the movement and the dial, and also about the, the many hands in addition to, to carries who are involved in the, in the process and in making the watch and the, the various artisans that, that's come alongside and help breathe life into these watches. Yeah, I was um, impressed with the level of detail that he was able to gather as part of this process. And you can see just the 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 sheer number of options that are available from a custom maker like Kari, uh, you know, especially when it comes to dial iterations, the the variance that you can have when it comes to dial iterations, not just different engine turning designs, but also, you know, the various plating options that are available, uh, the, the various layout options that are available, whether you're doing, you know, what type of, of, uh, numbers applied numerals you're doing uh it, it's incredible seeing all of this um available to uh to us so that we can see just what what sorts of things are available to uh, a collector who's willing to to spend the money and the time to uh to get something like this commissioned 
So it, it's quite impressive to see this, uh, this all detailed. The photographs are, are great. I was, I was really impressed with, with the level of detail that's, uh, that's available to us here. And one of the insights I found both interesting and surprising from the article as well is that Kari doesn't present all these options right out of the gate to a client. Uh, he spends quite a bit of time in, in conversation with the client and trying to suss out what it is that, that the client desires and does not overwhelm them with uh, myriad choices and just, uh, just tends to, to guide the, the process along in a, a much more discreet manner. And uh, at one point in, in the article, the the author expresses a, a, bit, a bit of frustration about not uh, having been presented every possible option in certain matters pertaining to the the dial. But he was also quick to to point out that the paradox of choice uh, that you you can sort of freeze like a deer in the the headlights if you're given too many options at the outset. So I think the way that that approaches things is is wise and is likely uh, some some hard won wisdom there in having designed a, a number of, of bespoke pieces for various collectors over the years it's been a number of years since i've done custom work for people and uh, one of the reasons i've i've avoided doing it is because it it is a real hassle to do this kind of work like it it really takes a significant amount of time as the artist doing doing the work and i think it really helps to have somebody who's managing that process be a different person than the person who's actually doing the work the fact that kari is not presenting the collector with every possible option is a great way of keeping your sanity uh, based on on my experience doing this you can't present a client with every single possible option they just get overwhelmed with choice and sometimes they're also they also end up making decisions which don't really match with what it is that you're doing and so you have to be careful about presenting things that are going to work well together so the the design options they have don't sort of interfere with each other so you know, you don't want to present somebody with the option to do, you know, let's say put two different colors together, which are going to look absolutely hideous. Or they want to put a particular design on a dial, which isn't going to work with the the movement, let's say. So I think it makes a lot of sense to be very, very focused on what it is that you're giving somebody access to. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned the, the amount of, of time it can take to pull off a, a custom piece like this as well. And uh, I, I knew that uh, some of these watches uh, did take a, a substantial uh, amount of, of time. And uh, I can't say I was surprised uh, so much by the amount of time, but I was surprised somewhat uh, that uh, the collector here was, was uh, as open as he was about sharing it but it took 27 months from from the time that he he placed the the initial down payment on the piece until the the time that he actually collected it so it's like just a little over over two years of a back and forth process to essentially bring this this watch to life and i, I know there are people out there complaining about trying to get industrialized watches from particular brands in a a reasonable time frame 
but uh, it really shows uh, an incredible amount of, of patience and uh, discipline on, on the part of a, a collector to be willing to wait that long uh, to finally have the, the piece delivered. Yeah, if you're if you're interested in getting any kind of custom work done, you have to expect it to take a length a good length of time to do it, and especially something like this that's as complicated as a, a watch. There's no way that you can knock that out in in a few months, right? So, I'm sure that the I don't remember if he mentions how long it took for the design process to to finish, but uh, that alone can take months and months and months, and uh, and sometimes it it goes nowhere, right? Like we I remember spending probably the better part of four and a half months going back and forth with the client and we just could not agree on a design and that was that was it that it went nowhere from there so that's one of the reasons why i've avoided doing this sort of work in the past it's uh or currently because it's it's just so frustrating the amount of time and energy that's spent trying to get to a point where everybody agrees and then it's uh it can be all for naught so uh, i'm impressed with uh as you say with the patience of the collector and uh, i'm impressed that kari is able to do this i know in the case of the the gary g article i think there were five or six of them that ordered the watches so they were it wasn't just a one-off watch like this one was Uh, there were there were a number of collectors who were who were getting that watch Uh, so that makes things a little bit easier in some respect because you you know you can make multiples of something Uh, and there's there's probably a little bit less uh, freedom in terms of the design the uh, you know Kari I'm sure probably put his foot down and said no this is what we're doing for for this design or here are your two options for this and and that makes things go a little bit faster yeah that, that makes a, a whole lot of, of sense there when you've got that many people all, all trying to get their own own say on a, a an otherwise very similar design between the lot of them the other thing that I found is that a lot of people don't appreciate the cost that's involved in doing a one-off piece and something that's completely unique to them. And, and so a lot of people, they're shocked when they hear how, how expensive it might be to do, let's say, a pen that's completely custom for them and, and has no, you know, no sort of foundation in other things that I've done. And that's something you have to realize is that if somebody needs to design something from scratch that's a lot of time and effort that you have to put into a piece that they may never be able to use again somewhere else. And that's just not something that um, that a lot of people can afford to do. So um, obviously Kari is always doing very limited runs of stuff and I expect a little, that everything that he's doing here can probably be reused in something else because uh, the amount of time and effort to, to develop something from scratch is astronomical. Mm, you're essentially throwing all economies of scale out the window. Yeah. And with this particular piece too, it actually adds a a complication to the piece that that has not been featured in uh, a piece by Votilanen before. So the collector actually worked with uh, one of the, the constructors at Votilanen's atelier, and uh, essentially their their role and, and job is is to design a, a watch mechanism or to make modifications to a, a watch's mechanism. And in this case, the the collector worked with uh, Guillaume Maya to add uh, an additional indicator to the watch that would display the city for various time zones on the watch as well and and so as to re- respect the the balance of the dial and not to clutter it up too much this particular display was was shifted to the back of the watch and 
quite a number of modifications were needed to be made to the, the base movement in order to accommodate that and to also make it feasible to adjust that time zone very quickly based on, on the city. I've, I've been seeing a lot of people lately putting uh, complications on the back side of the dial like this. Um, a few that I've seen recently are power reserves and uh, sticking them on the back. As you say here, putting the sort of the GMT subdial, if you will, on the back. And uh, I, I like this trend of seeing this. I, I don't know if we're ever going to see it in a lot of mainstream watches. I mean, obviously something like a Reverso, we've been seeing that for quite a while, but that's designed to be flipped over and you can sort of decide which face it is that you're going to see. But uh, yeah, there's a lot more of this going on and I like this trend. Uh, I think it's a good way of adding value and, and adding new features to a watch without making the dial into something that is a disaster in terms of legibility and layout and things like that. Because it's something we've talked about a few times in the past is is the challenges of having a, an extremely complicated dial that's that's full of too much stuff. And this is a nice balance of having the features that you want regularly on the dial, but then also having access to that complication if you need it just by taking the watch off and flipping it over. So I, th I think it's a nice balance of what they've done here. And I, I hope we start seeing more people thinking about putting complications like this on the back of the, uh, or at least indicators of some kind on the back of the dial or the back of the watch. Mm -hmm. and, and in this case, it, it's nice that the city references really only needed when setting the watch. Yeah. When, it comes to a manually wound watch like this as well. It's it's not very convenient to be winding it while on the wrist. So you're going to be <laughs> no. taking this this watch off from from time to time anyway. So when when taking it off to to wind it, uh, or to to change the the time zone based on the city, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to to flip it over and then use the push button within the, the crown itself to to quickly change the GMT, and then you still get the GMT display on the front uh, of the watch itself, uh, conveniently nested in the, the seconds subdial, and then you get the, the day-night indicator paired along with that. And, and the end result is is quite handsome. Uh, it reminds me of the the Masterpiece 7 that Kerry Votilainen made, which is a, one of his early decimal repeaters, and it is, remains among one of my, my favorite timepieces uh, that he has ever produced. And uh, I, I was impressed too, um, by the, the thought and, and care that this collector put into the details of the dial. It's not often that you, you hear uh, about the, the design of a, a watch dial from the perspective of a collector. It's more often that you get to hear it from the, the perspective of a, a watchmaker or a, a watch designer. And so that was, was very refreshing uh, for me as well and, and, and needs to to see that and just weighing the trade-offs between say arabic numbers versus roman numerals putting just a few numerals on the dial or, or whether to have a, a full array of numbers around the dial as well as the different colors and, and contrasts and, and which geoche patterns to to go with uh, there's one point in, the, in there where they were talking about doing the, the sunburst pattern for the the geoche in the center and i had a Collector had originally wanted to go with with a twenty four segment array uh, to represent the, the twenty four hours in a day, uh, but Kari uh, very adeptly and, and 
appropriately nudged him towards going with with 12 segments, which is uh, a much more fitting number. I think it would have been very busy to have had that broken up into 24 sections. Yeah, doing 24 lobe uh, engine pattern on that would have been much too busy in something that small. Uh, It works okay if you're working on something a little bit bigger. Uh, You know, maybe if you were making this into a desk clock or something like that, you could get away with with a 24 lobe rosette for the uh, the engine turning pattern. But 12 is uh, is certainly more appropriate for this kind of work and this scale of work. A few episodes back, we mentioned as well that the, the Watches TV had uh, released a video tour inside Kerry Votilainen's atelier on their Patreon page, and that would, would soon be released to the world on YouTube. And uh, that has, has now come to pass. Uh, so this walkthrough of... Kiribotilainen's main atelier where the, the actual watchmaking happens as well as their their dial workshop has now been published. Uh, they didn't make it over to his case manufacturing facilities, so that'll be something perhaps for, for a later date, but at least two-thirds of, of what goes into making a, a Kiribotilainen timepiece is now there and, and gives a very nice glimpse into that, uh, the most in-depth that, that I've seen to date. I, I was very pleasantly surprised by this video. One of the one of my big complaints about Marc Andre's videos is that they're usually not long enough. I want to see more detail. I want to see him get into more about what's going on. And I understand that he's making it for a YouTube audience who typically don't want to watch anything longer than sort of seven or eight minute videos. Uh, so this one was was a pleasant surprise because I think it's seventeen or eighteen minutes long. And they do go into a lot of depth in terms of what they're making, how they're making things. Um, they're showing artists working uh, everything from, uh, you know, the the actual design of the movements on um, SolidWorks and, you know, sort of talking a little bit about that process, as well as talking about the machining of the actual movements themselves, and then everything about the dial manufacturing and talking about the engine turning experience, talking about the different finishing they can do. It was uh, a very remarkable look into what's going on. I, there certainly aren't a lot of watchmakers who would open up their doors like that and allow that much information about what they're doing out into the world. So it was, it was wonderful to see that. It was nice from a maker's point of view to be able to see some of those details because there really are a lot of amazing details in there that you you just don't see otherwise and of course mark andre's videos are always very very well shot uh, so that helps a lot as well you they're they're very professionally done and and that helps to display exactly what it is that you're seeing and and if you know what you're looking for you can get a lot of uh, of good information out of these videos the guilloche work is is right in your wheelhouse what did mm-hmm. you think of, of seeing kari's guilloche setup yeah it was nice to see the setup and the the engines that they're using are interesting. They're clearly vintage engines that they've done some work on and that they've uh, modified a little bit for their purposes. It, it was kind of funny seeing these really nice, expensive old engines with seven uh, dollar IKEA LED lamps on them to uh, to light the piece. That <laughs> was uh, and ironically, I've got a number of those sitting in my shop as well that I use for lighting my uh, my work surfaces. So. I guess uh, it, whatever works, it's uh, that's what you're looking for. Uh, so it was it was nice seeing that. Um, I may have to go through and um, 
and do a couple of screen grabs of uh, some of the images they posted of the uh, the patterns that they were they were working on because they've actually got on screen at one point some of the uh, uh, some of the recipes that they use for their patterns. So I'm kind of curious to go through and analyze a few of those and see what they're doing. Um, so I, I'm very impressed. I, we've talked about Kari's stuff before. I'm all I've always been impressed with his engine turning work and the they do an, an amazing job of the engine turning and this this just solidifies in my mind the, that they that they are certainly doing some of the best engine turning out there right now on a regular basis on watches uh, i i know that companies like Breguet are probably doing significantly more in terms of numbers but i don't think that their engine turning work is is quite as good as what uh, Kari's doing i think they're he's experimenting with patterns that that few people are doing some of the uh, uh i don't remember what he calls them there are uh, some of the sort of warping patterns that they've got that um that they've designed are, are excellent and and look great so i'm i'm a huge fan of their engine turning and it was really nice to see the actual process of what they were doing and and a little bit more of uh of how they're doing it Another of the insights I found interesting from the aforementioned SGX article on the, on the custom piece was that for the Guilloche dial, this piece was, they say, bead blasted by, by hand. It doesn't specify mm-hmm. exactly how, uh, but it, it does say not sandblasted. So I wonder if perhaps it's the old school way of actually having a a, a watery solution of of sand material, um, essentially a bead blasting medium, and then slowly pouring that over a dial. So you know, a much gentler effect. And then following that, they anodize the the dial to give it the sort of color that you would think of as being a sort of a classic Breguet watch that would have been bleached silver. And then on top of that, they, they then do a, a lacquer coating. Now, having spoke to you a number of of times both on air and, and off air about your your preferences for the final finish on on Guilloche work. I'm curious your your thoughts on these processes. Yeah, the bead blasting there's a couple of different ways you can do it. The most people these days they're using an air powered bead blaster. You can get little pencil bead blasters that will uh that will shoot your you know your glass beads at uh, high velocity into the work. And that sort of speeds the process up and, and gets you a very consistent look. Um, traditionally, you can do this by using something like a funnel uh, with a with a small sort of uh, orifice at the bottom of the funnel to uh, drop the beads onto the, the work from a height. And it's a more subtle way of doing it. I know I've seen a couple of videos of um, Recep doing this with some of his bead blasting. Uh, I think on one of the movement plates that I think I saw him doing it. Uh, so there, there certainly are ways of bead blasting without using compressed air, and there are some some advantages to doing it. Uh, really, what you're getting is you're getting uh, a lot more control over how you build up that that texture, and uh, certainly there's there's less. Uh, less need for equipment which is nice as well and um and controlling controlling beads under high pressure air is annoying because they tend to bounce everywhere and and it's um it, they make a bit of a mess if they're if you're not using it in a blasting cabinet properly 
Yeah, but for me that that doesn't sound particularly different than what what most people are doing in modern in a modern way. It's just they're using a sort of a hand way of doing it, sort of a a slower and more controlled way of doing it. Um, in terms of the the coloring and things like that, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, coloring, engine turning, or or bleaching engine turning. I th- I think there's a place for it. Uh, depending on the texture that you're trying to create. But I also think that you're destroying a lot of what makes engine turning interesting. And that's that nice bright finish that you're getting. Now, of course, you have to be careful in the case of a watch because a bright finish can completely overpower what it is that you're doing, especially if you've got, let's say, a bright finish behind the the numbers on your chapter ring. That makes it extremely difficult to read what it is that you're trying to read. So there, there's a time and a place for bright finishes. Uh, I think that engine turning is one of them that you can do. That the the cuts are fairly shallow, so you can get away with um, with leaving them bright finished. At least from my experience with with the dials that I've been experimenting with. So I again, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna suggest that everybody has to stop bleaching their dials when they engine turn them. But I think that people are using bleaching as sort of a default in a way that I, I don't think is necessary. And, and uh, I think more people should look outside of that sort of design sense um, uh, when it comes to how they're, how they're prepping their engine turning surfaces. It is nice to see, though, uh, some of the anodization that he's doing and uh, some of the coloring that they're doing and getting engine turning on different colors without necessarily using something like enamel over top of it. Uh, that's fascinating to see there there's a chart i think that shows up in that uh, that sjx article and you can see the different colors that they're able to uh to get on the dials whether it's through a plating process or uh you know various galvanic uh, operations uh depending on what the metal is underneath and whatnot so it is nice seeing some color coming out of that without necessarily using uh, enamel over top of it now how would you describe the difference between uh a the cuts on a, a dial that is fresh from uh, the rose engine versus a, a dial that that has gone through that bleaching process when you take a piece of metal off of the engine whether it's a rose engine or a straight line engine you've got a very bright polished cut that comes out of it uh, the the idea behind engine turning like that is that you're getting reflections coming from multiple angles and because of that, it catches the light in certain ways that when you combine it with the various patterns of the engine turning, you get interesting moiré effects that come out of that reflection. So uh, a, a light will be reflected and diffracted in different ways depending on how the, the pattern is designed. And when you bleach it, what you're doing with the bleaching process is that you heat the metal up in this case, it's it's typically silver that you're doing it on. And that uh, brings oxides to the surface layer of the metal. You then stick the metal into a hot acid. Uh, we call it a pickle bath. It's a, a specific type of acid that we're using. And the oxide layer that's come to the surface of it is typically a sulfur oxide that's on there. And the acid will dissolve that sulfur oxide. And you'll be left with a fine silver layer that is sort of frosted. Uh, imagine if you were to take 
um, well, take something like the bead blasting we were talking about or sandblasting or sandpaper or something like that and you and you rub that over over glass. Often that's used in uh, windows to provide privacy. So you see that sort of frosted look over a piece of glass. This is the same kind of thing. You're, you're creating that frosted texture on the surface of the metal. And so all of those nice, bright, polished cuts that you had, they've now been... Um, they've now been presented with uh, uh, that frosted layer and you're never going to get that reflection back that you got out of the cut when it first came off of the engine. And so you're losing something there. You're you're not getting the same reflections. You're not getting the same moiré effects that you would get from a bright polished cut. And so that's that's sort of what you're losing with it. Now again, you know, it's a different design element. It's a different design choice. And it's not necessarily the wrong way of doing something, but there are very, very few people who are leaving the uh, the engine turning as a bright polish. And so we're not really seeing how that would look and, and the difference between it and the bleached look that everybody that everybody seems to be uh, to be doing these days. These days is in the last couple of centuries. Yeah, and then and I I firmly blame Breguet for this because Breguet is the one who sort of you know championed engine turning on dials. Thank you. I'm glad that you did that. But he never had bright cuts on his dials, as far as I know. I certainly none of the pieces I've seen have had bright cuts on them. And he was doing this this process, and of course everybody had to copy him. So now you know, 350, 400 years later, whatever it is, it's a tradition and nobody wants to change. And so that's, uh, it's sort of a, a blessing and a curse of with what he did. So in a, a somewhat similar vein to the surface finishing, there, there was a point in the video towards the end, so we're skipping ahead quite a ways here, uh, but there were uh, talking about polishing the dials and uh, they just very sh- briefly showed a, a machine from Festo, which is a machine I've not seen before. And uh, I can't say I know a whole lot about, although I am familiar with, with some of Festo's tooling. Uh, but this particular one, he, he spoke about being able to apply a, a very nice, bright polish to the, the lacquer finishes on the dials without bending or, or warping the dials in any way. So that this, this was quite neat and uh, an interesting insight into the, the dial making process as well. Yeah, I looked at a little, I've, I've looked up a little bit about what's going on there. And I think I, I haven't been able to get a, a definitive answer in what it is that he's doing, but I think it's basically a lapping process that he's doing. And so you're lapping the dial in between two very, very flat plates with a very fine abrasive in between them. And lapping is often used in prepping metal surfaces that have to be dead flat and uh, often at a very high polish. And depending on the lapping compound you use, you can get incredible surface finish out of it. Or you can also leave it slightly frosted, depending on what it is that you're trying to do. So I think think that's what's going on here. Uh, Based on the the explanation that he was giving and a little bit that I know about uh, sort of what you're doing to get those sorts of surface finishes. Mm-hmm. Lapping is what I would have presumed here as well, but it was the, the ambiguity of, of his explanation of what was actually happening yeah. in the process within, within this machine, which is effectively a, a black box. 
I'm not positive that that is necessarily what's taking place there. So that's that's something I'd, I'd certainly be curious to to learn more about. And I and the reason the other reason I think it's lapping is because I get the I got the impression from a few comments that he's also able to get a frosted finish on it, but a very very consistent frosted finish, and that also leads me to believe that it's a lapping process. Mm-hmm. Speaking of high polish, he also gave a quick peek. Uh, to polishing some some pinions, and uh, the the setup of those machines is is quite involved. But once you get them set up, uh, it's uh, it's just devilishly simple and effective and quick. Uh, just how well these these machines work at giving a nice flat black polish to the the leaves on a, a pinion. Yeah, that was one of the great setups that he had. I I did like the the sort of ragged break in the disc that allowed him to allows it to sort of pick the next pinion leaf up as it was going. And it was obviously just something where somebody tore the disc to, to be able to get, uh, get it to do that. So you had set up for things like that was really nice to see also things like the setup for uh, polishing their screw heads and things like that. All sorts of great little details like that, little tools that they have. Some of them they've clearly made themselves. Some of them are clearly adapted from traditional watchmaking tools. And those are the little details that I love seeing in a movie like this, a video like this. Uh, they're, uh, they're all those little details that nobody wants to talk about. Nobody would ever, you know, make a video about how, um, you know, how this happens or, or how it works because a lot of it's just that's the way that it's done in the industry. And so nobody really talks about it because that's, you know, you just do it in the normal way sort of thing. Uh, but it's nice seeing those little details and um, I hope that people appreciate them even if they're not necessarily getting into watchmaking because there there are a lot of great little details about how they build these machines to and again when I say machines a lot of times they're just very simple little jigs and fixtures that allow them to quickly and easily do the things that they need to do like black polishing a screw head or polishing black polishing the the pinion leaves on uh, on these watches so yeah great great little details like that in here an important step before achieving that black polish is that the heat treatment of the steel and the tempering process that that, that follows that as well I, I, I was both surprised and impressed by how primitive the the setup was for the hardening of, of steel in the atelier very old school uh, and the fact that they are, are putting literally thousands of tiny steel components uh, through this this treatment and this process over the course of a year to make you know that 50 some odd watches that are, that are coming out of out of his workshop each and every year uh, was uh, really a, a bit of a sight to behold I, I wasn't i wasn't very surprised that that's what they were doing because frankly it's such an easy way to do it and it's you know if you've got somebody who's experienced it even though it's primitive, they are going to be able to do it well and reproduce the results easily. So I, I can understand from that point of view. And when you start getting into sort of in more industrial processes for doing heat processing, heat treating, it's kind of ridiculous to use them on tiny little things like screws because frankly, they're, you know, they're, the, the industrial processes are being designed to heat treat hundreds or thousands of pounds of steel at a time and of course even though they're producing i think they said what was it eight thousand heat treated parts a year 
um, that's still an, a trivial number of parts just in terms of volume because of how tiny they are. So I, I'm not, in a lot of ways, I'm not really surprised that it's as primitive as it is because it, it works and all of the industrial versions are just so ridiculous. I, I'm sure if you're, you know, if you're Rolex, you can justify doing it, um, you know, doing it in a more industrial way, but 8,000 pieces a year is still a, a relatively small number compared to what, uh, what a company like Rolex is doing. So it was fun to see though. It was uh, nice to see what they were, uh, this guy sitting there in a darkened room, just, you know, slowly heat treating a, a part one at a time on a piece of charcoal and then dumping it into some water and going on to the next one. Mm-hmm. And most of these pieces would weigh less than a gram. So even in being generous and saying each one weighed a gram at, at 8,000 pieces, it'd be less than eight, eight kilograms of, of steel in the course of a year. Yeah, yeah, which nobody would ever, you know, if you sent that off to a to a heat treater, they would, first off, they would lose most of the parts. And uh, <laughs> and secondly, they, you know, it wouldn't be worth their time to do. So, uh, yeah, it would be, it would be challenging. It's, you know, what it's challenging for custom knife makers to have somebody heat treat a single blade. And a single blade is going to have more metal in it than probably, you know, probably half of the parts that, that Kari's heat treating in a year. Mm, but it remains a, a stark contrast to say their, their anodization setup. <laughs> sure, their anodization or their CNC setup or whatever. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're, obviously Kari has invested in technology where it makes sense to invest in technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that obviously, I, and we didn't get a chance to see their case manufacturing, but I'm sure if we went into their case manufacturing, you would see a lot of high-end CNC machines and uh, various other tools for doing things like, you know, Dyson EDM and and wire EDM and stuff like that. So I suspect we would see a lot of a lot of modern machining methods show up in the case making also. Uh, but if you know what, if the best way of doing something is the primitive way, or look at you know look at engine turning, right? We're still you still have a, a talented person standing or sitting behind a an engine and slowly turning that piece around and going over those cuts multiple times. And that that's just the best way of doing it. Even, even though we have CNC machines now and we have stamping processes, it's still the best way of doing it. So it's nice to see him investing in the technology where it makes sense and then going with it, you know, going old school when that's, that's what, uh, that's what makes sense. And that is a, a very apt way to, to describe it because it, Kari really is focused on the best way to do things. And no matter what facet of, of the watch or the company he is working on or, or looking at or evaluating, he really does endeavor and strive for the best possible way for things to be done. And, and the end result speaks for itself. One area of of the workshop I, I would have liked to see in action that, that did get missed in, in the watch's TV video segment that was the actual forming of the hairsprings, because I know that is something that, <laughs> that Kari does there in-house. Uh, he's renowned for using a, a Phillips overquill with, with a Grossman inner curve. And uh, that they show you a, a finished uh, balance complete there with the, the hairspring installed, but they, they don't actually show you the, the crafts people uh, hard at work defining those curves. So that, that would have been something or, or would be something I'd love to see in a yeah. future video from Marc-Andre or, I, you know, frankly, would, would love to go and visit Kari myself someday and uh, and just witness that firsthand, maybe even try my own hand at it. 
I agree. I, that was one of the things I noticed as well that was uh, that was left out. And I suspect it does not make particularly compelling video, which is why it either it was it was never filmed or it was filmed and, and it hit the cutting room floor. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that it would be a, a very exciting film to anybody other than you and me and a handful of other people around the world. Uh, so I can understand why it wasn't in there. But yeah, I would love to see that because I'm I'm really curious to see how they go about doing that and how they poise their balances. They're obviously using free sprung movements here. So it would be nice to see that process, see what they're doing, see how they're they're actually adjusting that because they they are making all of their own components. Amongst the CNC equipment, Haas was well represented there. Mm-hmm. And Kari was actually featured by Haas on their website a couple of years back. So we'll be sure to link to, to that in the show notes. And another article we'll link to on the, the case-making side of things is, is another article by Gary G to offer a little bit of insight and uh, a peek into that third facet of Kerry Botilainen's operation in addition to what was covered there by the Watches TV. Now, in the vein of visits to shops, uh, another series of videos on YouTube that have been excellent are coming from uh, Dean DK in Sydney, Australia. He's a, a new watchmaker who has been uh, going through the same uh, distance learning course through the BHI that I have been. And as part of his learning process, he's going through and rebuilding a 6497 movement from scratch. So he's taking an existing one and copying it, basically, and making his own uh, copy of the 6497. And uh, while he was on holiday in the UK and Europe earlier in the year with his family, he was able to visit a few different shops in the area. Uh, So, so far he has published videos from visits that he made to um, Vianney Halter's workshop. There's a series of, I want to say, four or five different videos that he made there. So that was great. He basically spent an entire day at... um, at Vianney's shop and chatting with him. So that was um, that was really nice. He also has a number of videos from when he visited uh, Heinrich at uh, KHWCC Watchmaking School in uh, Le Loc, Switzerland. Uh, that's a school that we've talked about before a number of times. And uh, if you haven't subscribed to Henrik's uh, blog, he's got a great blog where he talks about the processes, the, the what the students are doing. And in fact, he asks the students to write about their experiences on a weekly basis of what it is they're learning and what they're doing. Um, so Dean's videos are excellent. He's he's got a he's been publishing regularly. In fact, since he's um, got back from holiday, uh, he's been posting a video a day basically for the last week or so. And uh, so I, I highly recommend checking those out. Again, some great insight into what people are doing. Uh, some behind the scenes look at workshops that uh, that we wouldn't normally be able to see. So uh, go and check those out. And one of the neat insights I appreciated from uh, Vianney Halter's workshop uh, was seeing that uh, he, he too will, uh, for just quickly prototyping something, just just stick a piece of, of steel or brass onto a, a sheet of acrylic and hold it down in, in the mill with that and then just, just have at it, which is uh, something I do from time to time, but it's, uh, I appreciate knowing that uh, Vianney also does this, uh, just knowing that the level that, that he is executing at on, on a number of the timepieces that he has created over the years. It's, uh, it was very reassuring to, to see that. 
Yeah, the, the Viani's a, a quite the character, and it's uh, I've seen a few interviews with him over the years, and this one this one doesn't disappoint. He's uh, has some great tips and tricks out of what he's doing, and some great insight into uh, how he's making. So the decade is coming to a close, and by hints of things on your Instagram account, there it looks like uh, the time in your your current studio and, and workspace is, is drawing to to some form of close. What's going on there? Yeah, the um, my my current studio, uh, otherwise known as our house, and um, is is currently being vacated. Um, I am moving my studio and shop equipment out of the house, uh, much to Tamara's delight. Uh, she's getting her living room back, as well as um, well, really two thirds of the house that I've been consuming with shop space over the last uh, well, nearly a decade at this point. Uh, so I am. Um, uh, I am work, moving into a new shop space. Uh, Rich Lowen, who we've talked about a number of times on this show, a good friend and collaborator on a number of things. Uh, he and I are moving into a shared workspace uh, as of right now. We're currently doing some demolition and construction and various other things uh, in there. Uh, so it's going to house Lowen Design, uh, Rich's design studio. Uh, where he's going to be making art and um, basically whatever strikes his fancy. And I'm going to be working on my watches and pens. Uh, so that's where Silverhand Studio is going to be based out of. And uh, we also have a few other neat little things up our sleeves that we're going to put in there too. Uh, some of that's uh, secret and we're not going to quite reveal yet. But um, there's yeah, we're, we're going to have some fun with it. And it's it's nice to be moving into a space that I can expand into a little bit. Uh, we've got... Uh, I think a total of about 8,300 square feet that we're moving into, uh, which is absolutely palatial compared to the sort of 900 square feet that I'm currently taking in the, uh, in the house. So that's, uh, sort of what I'm, what I'm spending all of my time and mental energy on these days is, uh, is prepping this move and, and getting the new studio prepared for, uh, for us to move into. That's exciting times. It sounds like it's going to be very well worth it once everything is all all set in place and, and ready to go. Yeah, the the work that's involved in getting us prepped and uh, and doing the move is is always painful. But uh, once it's up and running and uh, we're able to we're able to get in there and work on a daily basis, we're both going to be very very happy and we're going to be able to get a lot more done than than we have been able to so far. Uh, also, one of our goals for this is to film a lot of what we're doing and publish that. So uh, we're going to start seeing a lot more of that. Uh, I know that uh, one of my themes for this year was organization, which um, I have completely thrown out the window at this point uh, because doing any kind of a move is absolute chaos. Uh, but once we move into the new shop, I'll have to focus a lot on that because um, despite the fact that we've got a you know, significantly more space than we we've got now between the two of us. Uh, we're going to need to build a, a lot of organization to make sure that everything sort of stays under control there. And then um, again, one of the the themes I've had over the last few years is trying to get more videos out and and share more of what it is that I'm doing. So uh, while that didn't go so well this year, uh, this process that we're going through of moving into a new space, uh, this is certainly going to be uh, something that we can. Uh, use as a, a sort of a platform to uh, more easily share what it is that we're doing and, and get it out to the world. And we had the foundation waterproofs on our, our house 
here this year and, and dealing with the, the contractors and, and delays with that certainly threw a, a wrench into to my plans for the year. And then things took a far longer and, and dragged out much longer than uh, I had originally hoped and it set all sorts of things back. So I, I hope that uh, the, the contractors you're currently dealing with getting this new space set up goes a, a whole lot more smoothly and that both you and Rich are able to set off on a, a great footing for 2020. Yeah, nothing ever goes as smoothly as you planned. And, um, you know, so certain things are taking longer than I want them to take. I know the contractors are, are happy with the, the pace that they're doing work, but um, I, I'm not happy with how fast things are going because, frankly, I want to get everything moved. I want to get it all into the new space. Um, and uh, I, I don't know how I'm going to move all of the stuff that I've got. Moving thousands and thousands of pounds of cast iron is going to be a bit of a nightmare. But um, slowly but surely, it's it's getting over there, and uh, yeah, it's it's still going to be another few months, I think, before we're all up and running and and working uh, comfortably again. Uh, I'd be surprised if uh, if it doesn't take until sort of the beginning of March before I'm I'm in there every day making things and and actually, you know, sort of happy with the way that things are. But it's going to be a great space when it's done, and uh, yeah, we're really looking forward to being able to share some of that with everybody. And uh, we're currently filming the process. We're not publishing any of that yet, but once uh, once we're ready, we'll uh, we'll be publishing some of the process of what it's taking to get this uh, this space up and running and get moved into it. So, for anyone who is interested, where should they be tuning into on on YouTube to get a taste of that once the first video drops? Well, right now you can get little teases of what's going on on Instagram. Both myself, uh, my Instagram feed, silver underscore hand. And Rich's feed on Instagram is Lowen.design. Uh, so that's where we're posting sort of our little teases right now of what's going on. Um, you can see some of the fun that we're having with our sign out front of the, uh, out front of the studio, as well as uh, some of the progress shots of what's happening in the, uh, in the studio space itself. Uh, but in terms of the, uh, the sort of the videos in the long term, uh, the Lowen Design YouTube channel, that's going to be where a lot of this content is posted. And then, of course, my channel inside the studio. Uh, I've only got a few videos up there right now, but that will uh, start to be filled up with a lot more content of uh, what it is that we're doing. So between the two of them, that's uh, that's the best place to uh, to follow in the long term, but also in the short term. You can uh, find us on Instagram and see what's going on there. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.